Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Banking Matters. I'm your host, Ashton Woodling. Joining me today is Ann Chapin. Ann Chapin is the risk, Chief Risk Officer at Mascoma Bank in Lebanon, New Hampshire. She's a corporate risk transformation executive with over 20 years of progressive experience at an F50 financial leader and a pioneer in enterprise risk strategy, planning, and risk management framework with hands-on experience mitigating major risk events. Anne is a solutions innovator with a passion for identifying risks before they become problems and a change leader dedicated to continuous improvement and operational excellence. She transforms complex ideas into actionable roadmaps to optimize process efficiency while minimizing expense. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Afton. I'm so excited to visit with you. One tradition we have at Banking Matters is to celebrate all of our unique journeys into banking. Rarely do we hear of uh, small children dreaming of becoming bankers. Um, Everybody wants to be like a firefighter instead, right? If you don't mind, will you share with me your journey into banking? I was a small child that wanted to be in banking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wrong. I still remember my mom having like the leftover old checks that they didn't need anymore and I would take them and play with them. But most importantly, I remember, and I didn't think about it until I started at the bank, going into their old branch and watching the little ladies in this little weird filing cabinet look at signature cards. And I thought, oh, that looks fun. And many, many, many years later, it turned out that bank was ended up being part of a purchase of a purchase of a merger and not acquisition. And um, I, I worked in it like I went in there and, and reviewed it. So I have always loved kind of accounting, finance, money, the way things work. But what really got me was the operational stuff around risk. So I started actually in a small town of 3,500 people. Though I am from outside of Los Angeles in um, Los Angeles County, I uh, I started in banking in a very small town, and I've moved five times in four different states for different banks until I landed here this year in uh, New Hampshire, and absolutely love it. So, which states have you been in? I Arizona, California, Nevada, North Carolina, back to California, and now New Hampshire. Oh my gosh, that's wild. I feel like we don't hear about that very often in banking, that that move. That's awesome. It, it's been amazing. I was a, one of the original, I can work remotely. Like for 20 years, I worked remotely long before COVID. Very good, BRG. I love that. Thank you for blazing that trail for the rest of us. <laughs> I didn't have to be on video much before. I, I could just wear my pajamas, but you know, now I got to... <laughs> Oh, my favorite part is just, you know, I only have to look professional from the chest up. So that's perfect. So we said today that we were going to discuss risk metrics and what that means to the bank, what it can do. So give me kind of your overview. What do risk metrics mean? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, risk metrics come from having a directive, strategic plan from your board of directors. And in that, they will set a risk appetite that says we're willing to accept this much risk to achieve these goals. So your risk metrics or your performance metrics, either way, are where you are drawing your boundary so that you don't hit um, 
further past the appetite that we have to accept risk, right? Banking in general is a risky business. So you have to put some guardrails there. Uh, so if you think about how that all works, um, I want to grow my strategic plan is I want to grow my deposit products, you know, $5 million in whatever period of time I'm making these small numbers. You all should go grow them bigger. Um, but you know, if I want to grow my deposits, well, a risk metric would be how much losses am I willing to take? How many um, accounts am I willing to see a, have attrition? What am I looking for from uh, various different spaces related to risk? Do, do I have all of my portfolio perfected from a BSA perspective? Am I having money walk out the door? So I don't have to grow it by 5 million. I have to grow it by 10 million because I don't have good risk um, controls and my risk metrics will help me know that. So as we um, take that risk appetite and we take those strategic plans, we need to have those controls in place to help us mitigate risk, achieve our plan and not have unintended consequences. The last thing you want is to have those. <laughs> right. So so the board sets the risk appetite, but I imagine that that's kind of this broad general concept, right? So tell me how we get in the weeds with the risk metrics and actually set those parameters that say, for instance, a loss in, in this kind of product is unacceptable. Yeah. From a board perspective, you're not going to get to that product level, right? You're going to say, oh, in our budget, maybe we will budget um, $125,000 in check fraud loss, right? Debit card loss, you kind of have to stick in a different space and whatnot. But, you know, we're willing to say that from a budget perspective, we would have that much of a loss. Um, and, and now when you get down to like retail banking, they might start saying, okay, what should we look at from a product perspective? And then you're going to start looking at the different risk metrics there, right? How many of our maybe entry level um, mass market checking accounts are having more debit card fraud or are they? Like, what are the numbers that you would expect to see from how that account is working versus how you want it to work? And that sort of takes you into overall, like, monitoring all of your metrics of how are the performance of different controls or different attributes working. And, and that's a hard thing, trying to find the data sometimes, especially in a small, you know, community bank where you don't have, you know, 40 people that are data scientists. You really need to be able to go just find some of your simple metrics like, hey, how many accounts closed this week? How many accounts um, are CDs rolled off, matured, rolled off, we didn't get them. I mean, these are attributes that you would want to know, and that helps drive some of those other decisions that you're going to make around your products, around your channel. You know, you have another risk metric, right? Like you're going to set the bar probably in your employee handbook on how many outages can a teller have? Or at what at what variable do you want to pull that lever and say, hey, at a thousand dollar loss, we can't recover it. We don't know where you got it. You're short. Unfortunately, you know, that's not it. But if you also have that guy that's 
$5 every time, every day, right? You need to be able to trend these metrics. You need to see what the behaviors look like and what you're willing to take. Yeah, I like I'm picturing this massive database in my head where all of these risk metrics should live. But is that realistic? Do you see these combined in that way? Or do these really just live with with the risk owner, if you will? Yeah, no, um, because you can, right? Every data point is a data point and you could look at all of them. Try giving a retail branch manager 100 data points and say, make sure you're successful at all of these. They're going to laugh in your face and say, did you want me to speak to customers? I can't, right? So if you if you think about risk metrics and sort of the risk framework that comes down from a risk appetite, there's there's the pillars, right? You know, credit risk, liquidity risk, price risk, operational risk. You're gonna, in some cases, there's usually seven. We actually build ours out till we have eight. So we put technology risk as a separate one. When it, within each of those pillars at that board level, you're gonna kind of wanna have three, four, three to five, right? Depending on what it is and, and what the state you are in. But then you go down the next layer in the umbrella and the management level, right? It's, if you have a higher level uh, metric that you're following, then management probably has four or five underneath each one of those to really know the behaviors of the customers and the behaviors of the employees and the behaviors of your controls. Perfect. So it sounds like a lot of what you described is really owned by what I would think of as like the first line of defense, right? So it's managers actually doing the monitoring, but do you see this having a role also in the second line? It's really a a role in all lines of defense. So if you start thinking about a risk management framework and you go look up COSO and what that looks like, there's three lines of defense. The first line is all about who creates that risk. They own that risk. They create it. They should know what their gaps are, where they have control gaps. They should know where they're solid. They should be able to pinpoint some things and then they should self-identify some issues. Your second line of defense is there to be your consultant and help you you navigate what's right and wrong from a regulatory perspective or maybe have some clues around operational risk, but also go in and test to make sure what the first line says they're doing that they're actually doing. Because it's always great to write something on paper, but we want to make sure that it's actually happening, right? That's one of those things where, oh, we have a policy for that. Okay. Does anyone follow? <laughs> we need to go there, right? And then, of course, the third line of defense is really coming in and, and verifying that everything that you're supposed to do from a regulatory perspective, from a doing business perspective, and then your policies, they're out there totally, you know, uninhibited and unbiased by everything else where first and second line work really closely together. And and that's that give and take and support. Um, That's where I would see all lines of defense are looking at those metrics, but the owners for sure, first line, they create the risk, they own the risk. It's like, I'd like to tell people you get the income, you also get the loss. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Yes. I love that. So, so if the first line is doing some work, um, to what extent do you th- think that the second and or third line can rely on that work that was performed? It, it should always be a trust, but verify, right? So you, as a second line, you have to go in 
you should know what's happening in your locations and your your functionality and what's on paper. You should really be intimately understanding the business, but there's there's so many complexities. So it's your job in the second line to build those relationships, to work with the first line. Tell me what your intent is. What are you trying to make sure happens? What is this procedure supposed to do? How are you doing it? Then you need to go take everything that's down and you know approved policies or procedures and look at it. Um, and the second line then, you know, trust but verify. We trust what you're telling us. We trust what you say you're doing. But now we're gonna go pull, you know, samples. We're gonna go interview people. We're gonna go truly inspect and see did it did it work as intended. So I always um, you, we had a, what we called the self assurance program. Did our controls work as we intended them to? And when they didn't, we would go through you know root cause analysis and develop a plan and and fill those gaps. That's good. You said something I want to circle back to. You talked about your relationship you have to maintain with the first line. And I think that is so important. And I'm so glad you said that. Um, can you kind of expand on that and tell me how you see that relationship should, should exist and evolve? Yeah. I mean, the first line, they're dealing with the customers. That's their, that's their, you know, supreme job is to execute against what the customer needs. Um, it's really nice to work at a mutually owned bank when I can say that it's not about the shareholders. We don't have those. That's fantastic. But it's really <laughs> everywhere. You should be executing against what the customer needs. And that should be your expertise is what does your customer need and how can you find a solution within the parameters that we have from, you know, the board policies. Um, but the second line is got that expertise, right? We're going to conferences and we're reading materials and we're certified in compliance and uh, risk and controls and process improvement. That's where you're going to see the second line really be able to help more is that expertise of, oh yeah, well, we're keeping track of the new regulations that are coming out, or we've been very aware that these new tech scams are coming, or we're very aware that, you know, there was a data breach and what has to happen. Taking out all of that need for there to be experts in the front line, but they know where they can go get that expertise. And then when they're trying to do something and build or change, we can help them navigate those waters so that they aren't trying to do it all on their own and be their own additional experts. We should absolutely be there to support them. And even though we are going to test independently all of their controls, that's the support, right? You'd rather us find it before you'd see an internal audit find it or an examiner find it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I feel like that comes down to, to like, the I want to say the vibe of the institution, but that's not right. My mind has left the word, but but that ultimate environment, like having um, a, culture. Like a culture. Thank you. Um, having that culture where where the first line is comfortable even coming to the second line and saying, "Hey, you've told us about this before, and I noticed this thing, and it doesn't quite smell right. Is this an issue?" So yeah. I love that you point that out. That back and forth, I feel like, is so key. It is, and I. I tell my team, you know, it's our job to say yes. Now, it may not be yes to the crazy idea that someone came up with that all of a sudden we're going to try out $10 for every, you know, 
walk in the door. That's not, that's a junk fee we're not going to do, but it is our job to find a solution to create income, to better serve the customer, to develop products that are in such a way that, you know, keeps us out of jail, supports the customer, <laughs> supports our revenue, right? I mean, that is our job. It is not about saying no, it's about finding a solution. Yeah. So what are some strategies you use when a business line comes to you and they do have that crazy idea that maybe any normal compliance officer or reasonable compliance officer's gut instinct is to say no? What strategies do you use to say, maybe try this? Um, You've got to know their intent right out of the gate. What's the intent? Why did you land on this solution? Because you didn't wake up at two in the morning and just think, man, it'd be a great idea to charge $10 to walk in the door, right? <laughs> that is not anything anybody's ever done. But you did note that, you know, money markets aren't being treated the same because there's no regulation around transactions anymore, right? So maybe you're trying to figure out how you can um, pay the appropriate interest for the appropriate balances in our variety of accounts. So that's when, you know, somebody comes up with a, this great idea. Hey, we're going to do, and this is a prime one that we re, we continue to respond to over and over and over, is that they want to do um, IDing the customer, authenticating a brand new customer on video by showing a driver's license. <laughs> and that's no. <laughs> and the reason that's no. <laughs> It's because we don't want to house a copy of a driver's license because we can't segregate that data and then make sure we don't use that data for credit decisions. And as well, it doesn't, you, there's no fraud techniques there. You can't touch it and feel it and know that it's an actual true, real driver's license. So, so what are the other steps we can do to online, digitally open brand new accounts? What services, what software, what opportunities do we have to know our customer, complete all of the things we need to, um, and move forward. So that's, that was their intent, right? Is we want to onboard more customers without making them come in. We don't need to capture the video of their ID. <laughs> I love that you bring that up. Cause I feel like I, I struggle with that one a lot. Like is watching banks try to plop that in the, in the, credit file with, with good intentions, right? We want to identify our customer. I get it. Absolutely. But yeah. Yeah. I love that. So let's talk about um, how it kind of circle back just a little bit to our risk appetite and our indicators, right? So how is this all going to overall help the bank? What What's the point, right? If I'm, if I'm on the board, why do I want this to happen? Why do you want to have indicators? <laughs> Metric? Yeah. Yeah, because you want to know what your progress is. And so yeah. if you are just an example, um, maybe um, you traditionally see about, you know, $50,000 in check fraud losses uh, annually, which everyone would love just that number. But let's just say that, right? You've the last three years, it's been, you know, 55, 75, 64, 45, right? You're sort of in that range. What what you want to know is what it, what's acceptable, right? Because there's nothing worse than handing data to a board or an executive committee or anyone and saying, here's your data and not telling them how to feel about it. 
That's what data is, is how do I feel about it? Yes, I opened 10 accounts today. How do I feel about it? Well, you closed 11, so you don't feel <laughs> um, But the, the key with when you get to these risk metrics is that you have a threshold. You have to be able to build out what is the appropriate amount. And for me, what I've always done is we, you know, take data, determine what our run rate had been, what it should be. Did we feel good about what it was? And we want to try to drive it down lower. You can't always say, oh, here's a brand new metric with a new threshold. We'll just keep it here. You kind of have to think, what is your success? Like, what are you going to feel good about? Because maybe you want that 50,000 to be 40,000, but you've had many years when it's not. So you want to have a threshold and then you want to have one just a little bit, you know, less than that, that says, okay, this is my outer boundary. If I start getting to this, we're in caution zone, right? Because we never want to get in, our, in the inner boundary. So in our outer boundary, this is when we're going to start having conversations. We're going to bring stakeholders together. We're going to try to determine, is there a reason why we're way different than we want to be or that we're trending towards a way that's not good? Was it one giant loss, you know, that we couldn't help because of reg E or something? So we will have those boundaries. And from a board perspective, that's what we want to give them, right? So often we see, here's a GL, here's our budget for that, here's our variance. It's the same thing. Here's our losses, here's what we said it was going to be, here's where we're at today, and let's start determining if we have to worry about it. And each metric is just its own single point. That's why under each risk pillar, you're going to have three or five or ten and combine how that performance is working to determine, do you have a problem? Perfect. I love that. I love the breakdown. So, so tell me if you could share one piece of advice then with our listeners, and it can be about uh, strategic initiatives and risk factors or testing or anything else, what would, what would you say? And, and, or more than one piece of advice, however you go about it. <laughs> I have so many, I've had a great <laughs> I have had a, such a great career and I have many, many years still to go. You can see I started when I was nine years old. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the best advice has always been don't be afraid. Doing the right thing, whether it feels good or not, is is the right thing. And so have courage when you see something, you got to speak up, you got to move, you got to do something about it. Um, so that has served me well. I do often feel like I have to pull my foot out of my mouth um, because one of my top strengths is harmony, but I took a risk job. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a little conflict there sometimes, but it does help me, right? With the whole idea of saying yes. The other advice I would say, if you're a leader, remember that um, everybody that is on your team, their time is more important than yours. If you don't make the time and listen and remove obstacles, no work gets done. So don't don't take their time lightly. It, it's far more important than my own. I love that. Yeah, kind of be selfless. That's that's good. Yeah. Well, thanks for visiting with me today, Anne. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Bring me back. I'll just talk and talk and talk, and they'll get sick of me. <laughs> done. It'll be recurring. I love it. <laughs> Oh, and for the rest of you, that's Banking Matters. <laughs>